radical call of the Christian walk for those who love Jesus and want to follow Jesus. In our world, we know that there is a form of Christianity that is all about doing and all about proclaiming and yet having nothing to do with godliness and having our hearts set upon Him. And the Sermon on the Mount clarifies all of this for us. The passage before us today, I'm just going to tell you what I've found typically happens is we look at all these different topics and it's like, and I'll just say pastorally, like, all right, well, you know what, we... We probably need to preach on anger. Like that's a, that's a we de, we got to preach on lust for sure. But uh, divorce that's a okay. Um, oaths nobody really talks about oaths anymore. Let's put divorce and oaths together. Um, and then retaliation. Oh yeah, we definitely talk about retaliation and love it. But like what we do is we be we begin and and I get it. It's easy for pastors to sit there and go. Well, these are the issues that I really need to talk about right now. But these, not so much. I think that we got an agreement or an understanding. So we don't need to really talk about it. So you know what I notice whenever I look at all of this? Jesus gives equal weight to each one of these. And I want us to just do that. What I would really like for us to do is consider this. If we kind of just look at the broad scope of it, not topic by topic, right? We're going to go topic by topic, but if we just take the broad scope of it, then it really comes down to this. What does the Christian walk look like on a daily basis? And here's six ways that that's going to show up in our lives on a daily basis. Also, if I'm going to sit here and I'm going to focus on anger, then you know what happens is somebody's able to go, good, this is an easy week for me. Like, I don't have anger issues. Oh, probably we do. Or, I don't have lust issues. I don't, that one's not for me. That's, that, that, he's writing a lot of notes. Okay. All right. She's writing notes next to him. And, or divorce. Look, look. Oh, and we, like, it, it only hits some in the moment. And I think that that's okay. Because whatever doesn't apply to us personally equips us so that we can serve others and love them well, too. But I was just, as I was reading through this and studying, God said, oh, don't miss verse 20. All right, so, so go with me right there. I think that verse 20 helps us understand the full scope of the rest of chapter 5. And verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he begins to talk about, Anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies. Verse 20 is what the rest of them are all about. Okay, so that's going to kind of be what I want us to understand and grasp from the very beginning. I look at it this way. Jesus taught them all and it seems with equal weight. And what we'll see whenever we look at these is that these are real things that real believers really walk with or walk in in the real world we need to know what Jesus has called us to do and be in this world. Does that make sense? And that kind, of, that kind of pulls it all together. So let's read all of Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 48. And I'm, I'm in the English Standard Version. Um, so if you're trying to line up your translations. And Jesus says, verse 20, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You've heard it said, heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, I, Jesus, say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard, it, heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In verse 31, he says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In verse 33 says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply, I'm sorry, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard, it, heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, let's pray. Lord God. Let your word so work within us that we know the call of discipleship. But also, Lord, that even as we go through this process, Lord, I also pray, Lord, that your spirit comforts us. Because no doubt there will be verses in here, Lord, that cut so quickly. And Lord, if it is from you, then that is good. But if it is from Satan, Lord, I pray that you guard our hearts and your spirit. Lord, the accuser loves to disqualify us. The accuser loves to slander. 
But Lord, we are your children and we are yours. And you have died once and for all, having forgiven us of all sins whenever you hung upon the cross. Lord, at the same time, we need to know what it means to walk in a way that truly honors you. So Lord, you know the the pattern of this sermon. I pray that you are honored in it. Amen. All right, a word. We're going to kind of preempt some, I want to do some front loading here real quick. A word about the Pharisees and Sadducees and why I say that this is key to understanding it all. Right, just real brief because Andy did, Andy did preach this a few weeks ago. But the Pharisees and Sadducees, it says that unless your righteousness exceeds those of the Pharisees and the Sadducees or the scribes, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, why in the world? Like, what is going on with that? Take a look because we're already in Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9. And this gives you an idea of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, and he says, in verses 7 through 9, Well did Isaiah, a prophet, prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And that's talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Like, just to bring it into context right now, in Arkansas today, we would not be calling them Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. We would call, be calling them pastors and priests and religious leaders. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes of that time, they were the religious leaders. They were keeping the temple. They were leading worship. They were, they were the ones going into the streets and leading the prayers and calling people into the temple. And Jesus says of them that they honor with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So that's who they would be like today. That's the status that we would afford to them. They were the religious leaders. And Jesus absolutely disagreed with them in just about every single way. But then we see those like Paul, who was a Pharisee. That God called from being a Pharisee to being a Christian and being devoted to him. But that's what he means there. Because what the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes would do is where we just spoke of these men in a way of saying where they're like, well, I don't, I don't need the badge. I don't need the honor. The Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes loved the honor. They loved the honor. They loved the recognition. They loved to be the one that was known as a religious leader. They would wear tassels on their, on their um, garments. They would make sure that people knew who they were. And so he says, unless you can get past the doing, which is what the Pharisees had pretty much come down to. Theirs was all about doing for achievement and accolades. And y'all, Christianity is not about doing for achievement and accolades and recognition. Christianity, authentic Christianity is not about doing. It's about bowing before Jesus. He gets to be the one that we bow to. And he's the one who gets to govern our lives. He is the king and we are not. And I just want to desperately know, y'all, what does the king want of me? And we're all going to absolutely be inadequate at that. But by his grace, he loves us. In all of our weakness, he loves us. And he has called us to him. But we cannot be only about the external matters. While that's important. You know, it actually begins at a much deeper level where holiness is required. And until we are willing to seek holiness inwardly, 
we will never truly please God outwardly. He cares about the heart so much more than I call a casual Christianity. But he cares so much more about the heart than this casual Christianity of our world does. The question is, do we truly want what Jesus expects of us? And if so, then our righteousness has to exceed that of the religious leaders of that time who were so busy doing, so busy saying, look at me, look how I have arrived. And he says, oh, no, no, no. It begins in the heart, the inner affection of the heart. So a word about our approach today. Okay. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Real quick, one more time. For the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Therefore, the pattern of today is going to be a little bit different. What we're going to do is let the word be living and active, a sharp sword, and let the word itself work within us. So I'm not going to do a verse by verse um, explication of everything that's going on here and what it all means. I think, I think we, it, we know what it means. The problem is, in our world, we're so rushed, we're so busy that we don't actually give time to let the Word work within us. So we're going to read the passage on anger, for example. I'm just going to give like a clarification. And then I'm just going to give you time to like just let that kind of sink in and dwell. And you have time with your God. Because what the Pharisees would do is say, they would say, here's the line. And Jesus says, that's not the line. The line is actually back here. And he's going to keep, he moves that line back for us, closer to the heart. But if we're not careful, what we do is we come in and we listen to somebody else talk. And we write down the things that they said. And we don't actually have time to meditate on the word itself. And so today the pattern is to read those passages. Let me give a few notes of clarification. And then give you, uh, I just, I'm going to have like a minute going because we've got to keep it, keep it rolling. Where you just have some time for that, to let that sink in. And for some... They need more than that, and for some, they need less than that. But by God's grace, I think that everything here is applicable. So rather than adding a lot of commentary to each of these verses, I feel like my role as the under-shepherd today is to lead you to the pasture of God's Word and to provide you the space to contemplate it. Because His Word is clear and plain, and by His Spirit that dwells in us, it can be understood. Y'all got it? All right, so it's going to be a little bit different pattern than we normally do. Here we go. What does Jesus reveal to us about walking in righteousness on a daily basis? I'm going to read the passage again, and, and you pay attention to it, as I am. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I, Jesus, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out of you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So just a couple of quick notes here. The word for angry there. It means a settled anger, a malice that is nursed inwardly. I think that that matters for your understanding. Because there are other verses, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the, the sun go down on your anger. So anger is an emotion that we have been equipped with. But this is speaking very intentionally about a settled anger. In other words, it is not some sudden anger, like something happened and like you get angry and then you're over it. This is a long-held intentional anger. Like that's the context of this. And the passage actually shows us the progression, like three stages of a progression here. But first someone is angry, and then they begin to insult, and then they offensively break fellowship with that person. That's what Jesus is referring to right here whenever he says, the one who's angry with his brother, the one who has this long-held resentment against them that leads to these things. But if we peel back the layers more and more, we really get to this. Anger most often, typically, absolutely stems from unforgiveness. And we who have been given, been forgiven so much eternally should be willing to forgive so much here in the temporary. And we don't really like that, to be honest. Right? We've got to hold on. But notice how this whole thing is going to end with loving our enemies. Now, biblically speaking, to harbor anger and cast off is to deny the very mercy that we ourselves have been shown. And that's why he says, one who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. We who have been forgiven much must forgive much. It's not easy, but it's the call to discipleship. It's what it means to walk in a way that honors the Lord. So, what are we to do? This is kind of how each section is going to end. What are we to do then? We are to be reconciled, which probably begins with forgiveness. If the Pharisee says, here is the line, then Jesus moves it back and says, no, it's actually here. So cross life, how is your anger and forgiveness? Before your God and not me, because you and God know your heart. This is not time for public confession, by the way. It's time for you to think. But how is your anger and forgiveness before your God? What must you do? I'm just going to give like a minute for you to be able to like dwell in that. Whether it's to take a note or to look back at the verse or to pray or to say, Lord, thank you for that. Freedom from that. Or whatever, like you and your God, one minute, and then we're going to go. Isn't it amazing how long one minute can actually be? If we just stop and meditate and let it soak and sink in. Let's keep moving. 
blessed. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I, Jesus, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you... I feel like I missed a verse. Yeah, I'm sorry. If, I don't know if I did or not. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So here's the here's thrust of this passage. Adultery is the action, but the intent is born in the heart. And that's what Jesus is really calling them back to. Jesus really clarifies that it is not, and he does this in the, the last one too, and he's doing it in these other ones. The action alone, it's not the action alone that is sinful, but the very intent behind it. It gets to the heart of the matter. It's not the action, it's the intent the look here that Jesus mentions is not like a casual glance, like looking around, just having like a casual glance or, or seeing, seeing someone that's handsome or beautiful or anything like that. It's not that. This is a very specific kind. It's a constant stare. And, and I like how Wearsby kind of like encapsulated it. It's a stare with the purpose of feeding his inner sensual appetites as a substitute for the act. In other words, Wearsby says it was not accidental. It was planned. It was born in the heart. And Jesus says that it's not about the outward action, it's about the intent of the heart. I need to clarify this as well. That while this is written about a man's lust after women, it is just as applicable for a woman's lust after men. This is something that Jesus, whenever he says your daily walk after me is going to include these different things, anger, lust, divorces in daily life, retaliation, loving enemies, oaths, all these things, he puts us before us to consider. Some would say that whenever he says to, to, to cast out the eye, or like rip it out, to cut off the hand, that that's a hyperbole. A lot of scholars would say that. I have no problem with that. A little bit. Okay, I, I don't think um, that he literally means to rip it out. But I also think, or cut it off, but I, I think that they were missing it if we simply say, well, it's a hyperbole. He's just trying to show you the seriousness of sin. We give ourselves excuses to love the sins that God so clearly hates. Do I think it's a hyperbole so that we understand the extremity to which we must go? Yes. Do I think it's enough to say it's a hyperbole? No. We need to take sin seriously. Our sin is serious enough that Christ went to the cross for us. What are we to do? Be serious about sin and cut it off. Like that's what we need. If the Pharisee said, here is a line, then Jesus is moving it all the way back. And he says, no, this is actually the line that you need to walk by. So cross life. Simply, how is your lust? I have no idea, but you do. Before your God, what must you do? And this is your time. I want to kind of give you some time to to pray and focus on that, and then we're going to keep going.
Let's continue on. Gets to a section on divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I, Jesus, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm going to be, I need you to hear my heart here, okay? I want to be like very sensitive and clear here. And I just ask that you hear my heart because, y'all, divorce is a very real and very painful thing in every congregation of the saints. Okay? The intent behind this passage is that God's intent for marriage was that it would be till death do us part. That it would be between a man and a woman. That it would be permanent in this world as a parable for Christ's love for the church. And divorce breaks God's intended design. And the Pharisees must not have been teaching that because Jesus is clarifying that. It doesn't seem like they were teaching the, the, like the seriousness of marriage or the intended design. So here's where I want to spend just a, a little bit more time. There are solid Christians now who have had a divorce in their past, and I am so sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Divorce is a painful and hurting thing. For others, it has been a great release and relief because of the conditions and situations to which they were subjected. I do hold that there, well, let me put it this way, while there are many reasons that some would Claim for divorce, I do hold that there are three biblical grounds for divorce. They are, biblical grounds meaning I, I, I think that these are okay. Abandonment, when one spouse leaves the other. They've abandoned them, they've left them. They're not, they're not married, they've been left there. Abuse, physical, sexual, verbal, mental, emotional. I think that's okay. I'm going to tell you why here in just a second. And adultery. Three A's. Three grounds for biblical divorce that, that I hold to. And that others may disagree with me on. But that I see and I'm okay with. Biblical divorce being abandonment, abuse, or adultery. When these three are evident, then I do believe a divorce can be deemed biblical. Because... God intended marriage to be a blessing in which love can flourish and be sanctified, not a prison in which evil can be condoned. I do not feel that he is honored when these three things are going on. If it is to be a parable of Christ's love for the church, and these three things not are just evident, but are indulged in, and, and, um, and then the spouse is made to feel like they have to be subjected to that, then that's where I land on that. So I need you to hear me on that. I also want to add this. If you are the innocent party in a past divorce, then I am so sorry for the hurt and the pain and the brokenness. Your God knows who you are. He knows your voice. And He is near to the brokenhearted. He is rich in mercy. If you are the guilty party in a past divorce, and are either now a Christian or you're a stronger Christian now and have a greater understanding, like you understand more fully and, and you've repented of that, then I want to remind you that God's forgiveness of, of our sins includes every single one of our sins. His forgiveness is once and for all and for all time. He is rich in mercy. 
So what are we to do then? As we read this passage, what are we to do? I would say consider strongly the bond of marriage. That's, that's what we need to understand. And we're going to see Jesus talk about this matter later in Matthew. But if the Pharisee says, here is the line, here is what is okay, then Jesus backs it up and he says, here's the line. So cross life, the question to consider, I think at this point is, how is your view of marriage? How do you consider that bond of marriage? But also, if you've walked in divorce, then there are ways to pray through that as well. So I'm going to give us some time to meditate on this passage, and then we're going to go on to oaths. So before you and your God in the privacy of your heart, that's what I'm providing. Before we move to oaths, I want to share with you that probably one of the most influential pastors in my life, who I, as a grandfather, I consider grandfather of the faith, he's passed away now, was Brother Bill Brown. And he had had a divorce in his past. He was a pastor. His wife abandoned him was not, and, and left him. She did not want to be a pastor's wife. And he went to resign. And as he was going to resign, then God intervened with people in his life who said, you did nothing wrong in this case. That man preached and upheld Christ to so many more and lived a God-glorifying life in, so, in a, such a greater capacity. So I just want you to hear that God uses the brokenness in our lives many of times which we cannot control to bring about greater glory. Okay, oaths. Verse 33, again, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, this is one of those, not going to lie, I get to, I'm like, well, I don't remember saying, here's my oath, Right? Like, we don't use that word. We might say, oh, I swear. Like, I swear. Or whenever we were growing up, I promise. And then we were kind of twisted when we were younger. I promise to stick a million needles in my eye. Like, that's just weird, right? The things that we would say. So the promise, like the idea of the oath being a serious promise. That's what we're talking about here, okay? Here's why he's saying this. The Pharisees would not dare breathe God's name. If they, if they breathed his name then it would have been blasphemous. And so they won't say, oh, I swear to God, or I promise on Yahweh. I, they couldn't do that. So what they would do is they would get as close as they possibly could. I swear to heaven, is what they would say. 
And Jesus is saying, don't swear to heaven. That's where he dwells. They say, well, I swear to Jerusalem. God cares about Jerusalem. They're trying to show the seriousness of what they're saying. And you know what Jesus says? Do not take an oath at all. Why? Because verse 37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Here's why they and we would probably make an oath like that. It's to cover up the deficiency of their character. We have to somehow make people believe we're serious about this because our character is not enough. And that's why Jesus says our yes is yes, our no is no, because of the integrity and the honesty of our character and who we are. That's who we should be. That if you say yes to me, I know it's done. If you say no to me, I don't question it. What are we to do? You know, we are to be honest people of high integrity. There should be no reason that Christians should be doubted for their word. If the Pharisee says, here's the line, Jesus came back, he says, no, here is the line. There is no oath to keep. There is character that you have been given. So cross life, I think we wrestle with it in this way. How is your honesty and your integrity? And integrity is what happens when nobody else is watching. In the privacy of your home and of your heart, who are you? Is there integrity or not? So how is your honesty? How is your integrity? And I have no idea. That's not always for me to know. But your God who is in the heavens knows you, cares about you, communes with you. And he says, you can come to my throne. And so I want to just give this space before we leave this place so that we can walk in a way and wrestle with these verses. How is your honesty and integrity? You have time to pray, meditate, and then we are going to go on. We're going to go on. Again, if you're, you're a guest here, then you're probably thinking, man, they, they stop a whole lot. Like, they pray a whole lot. And that's, and if you're a member here, you're like, man, we're stopping a whole lot. We're praying a whole lot. It's really easy to read the verses and rush past them, especially whenever it begins to meddle in, in who we are. I just want to kind of give this time to show you that as you read a passage, here's how you can stop, and you can do a whole lot in one minute. Busy moms. Those of you with, like, multiple kids, and you're like reading the Bible on the counter while you're holding a kid here and holding the other kid off here. Like there's a whole lot that you can get done in one minute. Working workers, there's a whole lot you can get done in one minute on a commute to work. All right, let's keep going. Verse 38. We ain't going to like this one, y'all. Just going to put it in our cans and we ain't going to like it. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I... Jesus, say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So this is actually the law of retaliation. And the original law was a fair one. It was actually intent to keep people from forcing the offender to pay more than what was due back. So it was a good law. Like it was fair. It also prevented people from taking personal revenge on somebody. It, it had to be equal. And what Jesus is doing here is he's replacing the law with an attitude. We must be willing to suffer loss rather than to cause another to suffer. That's what he's saying. Wearsby says Jesus is filling up the law and his filling up the law further means that we should try to help the sinner. The law would say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It seems like fair payback, but Jesus says something pretty radical to us. Do not resist the evil one. Turn to him the other cheek. To be struck is what it means. To give more than we're asked if we are sued. To go beyond what's commanded. To give to the beggar and the borrower. We are to go beyond. What are we to do? We are as God's children, because to Him we cry, Abba, Father, you and I are to be kind. We are to be gracious. We are to be merciful. We are to be forgiving. All that bound up right there. To the one who asks, we give. To the one who struck, we show mercy and forgiveness. To the one who begs, we give. We go beyond what is commanded, because our Christ has commanded this of us. If the Pharisee says, here's all you have to do, then Jesus pulls a line all the way back and he says, this is actually where the line is. This is what I require of you. We like the idea of showing justice, but the rest of the verse is to show mercy and justice. We're usually pretty good at the justice part. We're not always great at the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace. So if we're to be kind and gracious and merciful and forgiving, cross life, how is your grace? How is our grace? So before your God, what do you do with these verses? And what would He have you to do? last passage for us today. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Real quick, we're probably prone to think, well, I don't have enemies. I'm delightful, right? Everybody loves me, but we do. And if we don't now, then we will. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, 
love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Isn't it interesting how you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect? Completely encapsulates this whole what we would call a pericope, like that's the, the, the big word, like this whole passage where we are to not have anger at the beginning of it, where we are to love our enemies, and it's all encapsulated in, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Y'all, in this part, Jesus backs the line up again. This is acceptable to the world. This is what the world has made following God to look like. And Jesus says, no, it looks like this. What the law taught, Jesus fills to its fuller meaning. Y'all need to remember, because we are prone to forget. Brothers and sisters, we too were once enemies of God, and yet He loved us. Never let that cease to amaze you. One of the most amazing theological truths is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Who are we, who are you that He would even love you in the beginning? We know what we walked in. We know who we were. And yet a holy God would set his love on us when while we were enemies, y'all, we were the enemies and he loved us. We were, if we're going to love our enemies and we would do that, then we would be like our father. That's what I think we need to take away from here. We were enemies, yet he loved us. And when we love our enemies, then we are like him. I'm not saying it's easy. I am most definitely not saying that this is natural. It goes against everything of who we are and how we're wired to love those who speak negatively and who hate us. It surprises people whenever I tell them I do have enemies. In my roles and in my position in administration and as a, in walking in life, I'm going to make people mad. And they're not going to like me. I don't get it. I mean, I'm, I'm an absolute delight. I am enjoyable. Like, I get along with everyone. I'm nice and kind. I'm never blunt, never, never too forward. I'm gracious at all times. No. I have those who are enemies. And by God's grace, I've been able to reconcile with some of them. And it wasn't easy. And I didn't really want to do it in my flesh, but I knew that it honored the Lord. And you know what? At least in one situation that I can look at, oh, God was absolutely glorified. The love of Christ was absolutely known on a grander scale and to more people who knew of the animosity. But I will say this, and Jesus says it too. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Why would he say that? He says it because of this. It is hard to hate or to be vindictive or unforgiving to someone for whom you pray. If you have someone and there's division there and you're not getting along, then you should begin to pray for them. Because what will happen when you pray for your enemies? You don't like to call them that. That seems heavy, I know. Let's call it what it is, though. God knows if they're an enemy in your heart or not, whether they perceive it or not. When we pray for our enemies, we will experience a softening toward them that they may never reciprocate. But our heart is. The question is, not is it right to be angry and unforgiving, the question is, will we be like Jesus who set his love upon, or like God who set his love upon us while we were enemies? 
The line's been moved back. What does it mean to walk in righteousness day by day? It is to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which also leads us back to the retaliation and how we do not resist them, how we give them grace, how we give if asked, which moves us all the way back. We can keep going back through all of these. How is your love towards your enemies? So we'll give a, a brief moment of reflection, then I want to encourage you with some verses before we finish. I'm just going to give you some time. How is your love towards your enemies? What are you to do? Love and pray for them. Okay, so the question probably becomes, at the end of all this, what then must we do? Like, if all these things are to be true, if this is how we're to walk a life of daily righteousness, and to walk this way, y'all remember verse 20, to walk in this way, which is incredibly countercultural to America, to Arkansas, to our natural tendency of who we are as people, to walk in this way is to glorify God by having a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. But at the end of it, I want to give you some verses and some, some, I guess, pastoral counsel. What then must we do? And I'm not going to have you turn to all these passages. I would ask that maybe you just write them down for the sake of time. I understand those benches, though incredibly comfortable from up here for y'all. Um, I do get, they get uncomfortable. But you've got to hear some of this. Listen to what then must we do? Here are the, the four things or five things I want you, that we're going to walk through real quick. We're going to avoid sin. We're going to, and you're going to hear them again, accept discipline, confess sin, accept forgiveness, and marvel at grace. And I'm just going to give you some verses. I'm, I hope what you leave here with, because it was very intentional, is not, well, remember, here's what Ricky said about that. Oh, it's just been very intentionally... Here's the word and let it work within us. First thing, what then must we do? We must avoid sin. James 4, 7 says this. Submit yourselves therefore to God. And then it says this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When any of these come up, whenever this sin arises, it's very clear in James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In our resisting, he will flee. It doesn't mean, though, in resisting in this moment, he's going to be like, oh, oh, they resisted. I'm out of here. Oh, no. He is heavy and relentless. But you resist the temptation and that sin, and he will flee. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14. By the way, all my notes always available. I can send it all to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14. It says, no temptation has overtaken you. Please hear this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. 
and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. When temptation comes up, you need to know that the level and the, the intensity of that temptation is not so much that you cannot withstand it. You will feel like you cannot withstand it. You will feel like the only way out of it is to indulge it. And scripture says that there is no temptation that is uncommon to everybody. Everybody. At some point, it says God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted by your, beyond your ability. And then it says this. He will also provide the way of escape. Our God is faithful. When temptation rises, we resist the devil. He flees because God has given a way of escape. We need to cling to that. What else must we be willing to do? We must accept discipline. Well, not popular to say this, but Hebrews 12, 3 through 13 says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, which says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Hear this, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If we are disciplined for the sin that we commit, it's because we're loved, not because we're hated. When my kids, who now are perfect, right? When my kids break a rule or don't do what they're, what they're called to do, I discipline them because they're called to something so much greater than that action. Because God loves us and accepts us as sons, He will discipline us. It goes on, it says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It goes on, it says, if you are left without discipline, I'm sorry, it goes on. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Myself and my sons and, my, and Kenley who's back here. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. If you're walking in a season of discipline, it's because you are loved by God who knows what you need so that you may grow in holiness. What else must we do? We must confess sin. No doubt. And now if you went through this whole list and you're like, got nothing to pray about. I'm good. I love my enemies. I don't retaliate. Full of grace and mercy and good works. Like if there, there's nothing here that applies to me, I will repeat the sermon. All right. <laughs> if though we have sin. First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, if we confess them, it says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Hebrews 7, 14 through 16 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then it says, So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we're probably good with all that. And here's probably the one that we're not good at. Accept forgiveness. We are not good at accepting God's forgiveness. God, thank you for forgiving me. And yet then we beat ourselves up over and over and over. And Psalm 32 verses 1 through 7 says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man whose iniquity the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit there is no deceit. David says, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, God, was heavy upon me. My strength was drained as in the summer heat. In verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. And I said, I will confess, confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. If there's that crushing weight that builds up as you read about all these sins and occurrences, then you need to know you're forgiven. Once and for all, for all time, he went to the cross and he paid the debt. He has forgiven us. Satan is relentless in reminding us of our failures. But that's not God. If you've been forgiven, you've been forgiven. But sometimes what you have to do is take that moment that Satan has put before you. And whenever he says, but don't you remember? Yes, I do. And he paid it on the cross. And that's what I need you to take a lot from today. Because we are great at giving forgiveness. We are horrible at accepting it. Last three verses, very quick. And then we're going to sing and we're going to go from this place. Y'all, we should marvel at his grace. I think that these six passages really start to show us the tendency of the human heart. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, As we marvel at His grace, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what Isaiah 43.25 says? Isaiah 43.25, God Himself says, I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In Psalm 103, 10 through 13, the psalm we began with. He has not dealt with us according to our sins or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving devotion for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Marvel at that grace. A high and holy God who is rich in love and kindness and forgiveness and compassion for you and me. Y'all, I know it's been long. I know it's going to be long. Sorry. But all of it together, what does it mean to walk a life of daily righteousness. Looks like this. The line gets moved back to the heart of the matter. And we, in the privacy of our hearts and the integrity of who we are, our innermost being, we seek to honor Him first and foremost with all that we are. He is a greater affection of anything that comes at us. And that is what begins to change us into such a gracious and kind and merciful people that honors our God who saved us. 
Unfortunately, what we're known for in this world as Christians is what we are against rather than what we're for. And we are for his glory. And for his glory, we live. And to live for his glory means that we need to reckon with verses like this. Let's pray. Lord, may you be honored and praised. I don't know what you do with verses and passages and sermons like this. I know it's, Lord, on, on, I know it's long. But Lord, your word is rich and you are kind and good. Lord, I pray that you are honored and glorified in how we live our lives. Amen.